Hello and welcome to my podcast, How I Teach Golf. My name's Duncan Walger and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of How I Teach Golf. Today I'm going to delve into the mind side of, uh, of golf and uh, someone I've known for nearly 20 years now when I used to do some Surrey County coaching um, he was brought in as the sports psychologist being a former uh, golf professional I think he was still a golf professional at the time uh, he's a sports psychologist working globally with sports competitors of all ages and abilities he's an author he's a fellow podcaster um, a former golf professional now, he says on his bio. So I'm really looking forward to coming up with Dan Abrahams. Dan, how are we? Duncan, I'm really well, mate, and delighted to be on your podcast. It's an honour. It's an uh, honour. No, it was, uh, I've been, you know, I, I go through Instagram and, and Twitter and bits and pieces, and I'm always looking for people that are asking questions or making statements that aren't controversial, but are trying to make a point of trying to get people better. And, you know, a few of your quotes really resonated with me. The Bobby Robson one I just thought was phenomenal. Um, so that's what made me reconnect with you. And I was really keen to get you on the show. But, uh, Dan, how did you how did you get into the game of golf, first of all? And then we get into how you ended up into the, the psychology world. Yeah, sure. So I took up golf uh, at the age of 13, which uh, I suppose these days we might think that that's actually quite late, really. But... Um, I played throughout my teenage years, fell in love with the game, and as my schoolwork deteriorated, uh, my golf improved, uh, yeah. much to the frustration of my parents, I probably. <laughs> and um, I uh, fin- completed my A-levels and announced to my parents, oh, I was a scratch golfer. I was okay, Duncan. You know, I wasn't the best of the best by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it was that was at a time in the mid-90s when actually a scratch handicap sort of got you in the top 100 handicaps in the country, actually. Yeah. And I seem to remember my name being uh, glorious in the top 100 handicaps or whatever. But uh, I, I, I was OK. I was an OK golfer. And I announced to my parents uh, that I wanted to become the best golfer in the world. So uh, at that time, skipped university um, and um, set about playing full time amateur golf, which I think lasted all of about. Um, a year when I realised, oh, I'm going to have to spend, uh, this is going to take a bit longer than I thought to get to world number one. This isn't going to be a a Woods-esque, amazing trajectory towards the world's best. So uh, I actually went into the uh, shop at Dulwich and Sydney Hill Golf Club under David Bailey, PGA Pro. And uh, and, uh, he was great because he, um, you know, like everybody, I did spend, quite a bit of time in the shop but I at that time I, I didn't do much teaching uh, I mainly played and enjoyed playing playing regionally and county wise and and then on to uh, um, I think at that time it was sort of MasterCard tour the British MasterCard yep. tour and the Futures yep. tour if you remember that, the Hippo tour yeah all of those old tours and um, and um, I think after a few years um, it was around the turn of the millennia I um I think I said, oh, wow, this is, um, I'm really not shooting low enough, consistent enough. And I was playing with players who were stiffing it more often than I was uh, getting it on the green, I think. So um, I, uh, I, I started to teach more, f- fell uh-huh. in love with coaching. 
Um, and, um, you know, throughout my playing days, Duncan, I'd always been the guy who was asking why. Why do I feel like I do? Because I was an OK ball striker, but I was pretty poor between yeah. my two ears. Um, and um, I I was also asking why. I, you know, I picked up a, the, the old Dr. Bob Rotella book, Golf is Not uh-huh. a Game of Perfect. And I'd, I'd read... To be fair, I'd been a bit of an anorak as a teenager, so I'd read Tim Galway's In a Game of Golf and other various bits and pieces throughout my teenage years. And um, I suppose coaching the game really accelerated my passion for the psychology of of of, of, of golf. And uh, I decided, well, look, I, I want to, you know, it was at the time when the PGA was starting to bring in more sort of holistic courses and CPDs. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go back, I'm going to go to university. And I did a first degree in psychology um, and then a master's degree in sports psychology as I was coaching. And I got to a crossroads and um, had to make a decision. Am I going to be a PGA coach with uh, these extra qualifications, which I think at that time was uh, quite yeah. rare. Um, not so much now. Every Everyone's got a PhD now. Don't uh, we? so, you're talking uh, to one that has, no. though. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 um and i just thought you know what i really really fancy um working in other sports i love golf i love yeah. golf to bits um i think i i didn't love playing it so much anymore i was i was very much into the coaching side um but i i i um, as you alluded to earlier i was involved under Hume yeah. and county side and other coaches mark day and and um various others and yourself and and then um uh, I said to Hugh, "Look, can I just do the sports psychology? Come away from the ca- coaching, and and in the end, I made the decision. Yeah, I'm 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 going to do the sports psychology. So I had supervision and got myself registered, uh, HCPC registered Health and Care Professions Council. And I suppose for the last fifteen years, I've very much been a specialised. Well, I've been a sports psychologist and specialised in. I always say specialised in golf and football, um, but I've worked in other." other areas as well other sports as well which we can touch upon so uh hopefully i haven't no. put on there mate but that's a kind of a potty yeah i mean it's the, the interesting part for me is at what point did you find yourself kind of going away from the technical side of of golf instruction mm. and more down the solid psychology side was it i mean obviously things like the inner game of golf by timothy galway bob rotella's books which were the groundbreakers, they were the, the kind of front runners. So they obviously pricked your interest. But what um, can you can you kind of mm. pinpoint anywhere that you just went, you know what, I'm not really interested in the latest golf swing book, but I'm really interested in this <laughs> psychology book. Yeah, and you know what, I think when, when I think of golf swing books, you know, at the time I had, Jim McLean's and your Hebron's and uh, Ledbetter's and I had every book up on my bookshelf and and uh, and I was yeah. really into it and the CPD course I was doing a lot and and oh it's a really good question um I I think um I, th- I think there's the romantic answer and there's the non-romantic answer and the non uh, and the romantic that the non-romantic answer was looking around and thinking uh, how do I how do I carve out a niche for myself and and uh you know there's a lot of golf coaches and there's a lot of great golf coaches and i felt that i was i was an average golfer i was a good coach but not uh-huh. a great coach um and i felt that i had the capacity yeah uh, dare i say this to be a really good 
sports psychologist. I'd never say I'm a great psychologist because that would be the wrong thing to say. To, to, to say. But I think I, I, because I started very early at 14, 15, reading these books, I felt I, it just gave me a bit more of intuition and a natural affinity to the psychological area. And um, even though things have obviously grown and changed for me in terms of the way I approach sports psychology i think i just felt hey that's going to be a really cool thing to 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 do and to specialize in it gives me the opportunity i think really it's the the romantic side is it just gives me the opportunity to work in other sports across sports and uh, i really fancy doing that um it was an interesting time actually duncan because i i looked at the golf industry and uh, very much Carl, um, who I know yeah. you know very well, and, and, yeah. and Jamie Edwards were uh, 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 sort of top, top of the pile in the list there. And, and um, I, I was phoning around and contacting pros and saying, oh, perhaps I can come and deliver something. And every man and his dog seemed to be getting Carl yeah. in. So um, I actually looked, which is great. You know, I, I've got lots of times for Carl's work. I think it's fantastic. He's, he's, I think at that time he really did... Um, uh, bring to life uh, sports psychology, um, even though he wouldn't necessarily call himself a sports psychologist. I think he brought to life the mental side of the game and and really created uh, a greater feeling of yep. availability for for coaches um, at that time. We're going back fifteen, yep. sixteen years, and and um, uh, and so I actually decided, uh, even though I know golf like the back of my hand, essentially, I decided that I was I actually looked to football to sort of create a similar niche for myself so that drew me away so I've rambled on I don't know if I've answered your question but I, I think there's that, that sort of hmm, what profession can I do here so there was the practical side but there was also the romantic side of um, sort of loving psychology really be engaged with it and just having the opportunity to work in other disciplines other so you've, you've you've made the decision now to to go 100% all into your sports psychology work and your practice. So you left mm. Dulwich and Sydney, you were still there as an assistant or had you been somewhere else? Yeah, I'd been somewhere else. So I'd, I'd coached at uh, the glorious Central London yes, Golf Centre. Fortunately, it's no um, longer. Which, yeah. <laughs> oh, is it no yeah, longer? It closed, wow. I, I, it closed last year, that. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Somebody had said that. It, 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 well, that's a shame. Uh, it, it doesn't enormously surprised me but it wasn't kept very well but it did serve the local did, community did, so that, yeah. that that dem- demonstrates the importance of getting the balance between business and um supporting yeah. the community but um perhaps that got lost in the noise there but uh i, I yeah like everybody else uh, I, I was sort of doing 40 hours of lessons a week there and um you know i i always say duncan that that was um coaching golf i think you know that that day to day or hour to hour that you know you coach the housewife and then the student and then the the low handicap and then the pro and then the businessman and then and so on and so forth and and uh i those interactions uh really gave me uh, the best possible grounding to be a sports psychologist. I, I just think it was, dare I say this, it was far more influential than my master's degree. It, it, it gives, gives you a, a solid grounding in theory, but ultimately I always felt I hit the ground running with my master's uh, because I was the only one who was full-time coaching uh, on the sports but psychology course. Of so, with different human beings on a day-to-day basis. 
Massively, mate. Massively. I mean, it makes such a difference. I mean, don't get me wrong. The, the theoretical side, it's there. It, it's, and we'll probably talk more preempting yeah. what we'll talk about, but it, it's not not important. Of course, it's important. But ultimately, um, you have to be able to um, establish relationships um, and, um, and scaffold your language to be able to get complex ideas concepts theories across to people and i think golf coaching really helped me to do that i remember when i started to take golf coaching seriously you know in the first i don't know x amount of months i was speaking a language even as a golf coach i was trying to speak a language that people didn't necessarily not so much understand but resonate mm-hmm. with and and and, and it was over time that I realized I can't speak this way. I can't stand there and start showing off to people what I know about the golf swing. You know, I, I, it's one thing to know about the golf swing. It's another thing to be within the golf swing. And I, and I have to be able to speak the person's language. I have to be able to ask the kind of questions that helps me see through, uh, you know, through their eyes, the world through their eyes, etc. cetera. So um, I, I think that that, gave me the coaching gave me a real good grounding uh, that has helped me become a better sports psychologist um so i was yeah i was coaching and um and i i think i'd left dulwich but i actually went back to dulwich after um being at central london golf center because it gave me more space i was still coaching at dulwich and dave bailey very kind just said yeah come back you can start to coach and um, I was doing my, my studies alongside. I was finishing off my degree and then uh, doing my master's degree. And um, by the end of my master's degree, I, I actually at that crossroads, I, for the first year or so, I was going to do coaching. But then just something snapped in me, Duncan. I don't know what it was. It was just, um, I, as I say, I can best pinpoint it by saying it was just the opportunity to work in multiple sports. And um, I was coaching at Dulwich and I started to work in football at that time uh, with some non-league sides. And it just built. How did you get into the non-league side coaching? Well, actually, we had a member at Dulwich who uh, was part owner of um, a team called Fisher Athletic. And um, they were competing at the time in what is the sixth division. So it's the conference South. It was called the blue square South at the time. And um, uh, I was talking to him one day and he said, look, come along, um, deliver a presentation and we'll go from there. And that's what I did. And the players seemed to like that. It, It was funny, you know, Duncan, sometimes, you know, that as I say, I could stand over a golf ball. I could practice all day long. And there were still times where it felt like there was a snake in my hand, basically. <laughs> it just felt like I just, I can imagine Rory would stand there and just that, that, that grip fits. It feels great the vast majority of the time. And I could come off, I could come off practicing for four hours, which probably wasn't a good thing anyway, given the variability in space and things we know now about practice. But I could come off for four hours of practice and still feel uncomfortable yeah. over the ball. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I stood in front of the footballers, and although I certainly wasn't an expert in football, I was an armchair supporter and a Spurs supporter, so how <laughs> bad's that? Um, and, and I 
I, I just felt comfortable, mate. I, I don't know what it is. It's just, you know, when I stood in front of the England yeah. golf coaches, I just feel comfortable standing up there. Uh, and that's not to 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 um, show off or it's not to impress. It's just kind of, it, it's really interesting. Sometimes you it just, just feel, right. you have, it just feels right. And, um, and really it went from there. I worked a season with that club and it was a brilliant season and it was a wonderful you know what, mate? And and the reason why I really wanted to start in non-league in football was because my experiences as a golf coach and a golfer was sometimes I listened to sports psychologists speak about golf and they just lost me. And maybe that's my narrow mindedness. And I think this was was the brilliance of, say, Carl and and, uh, and others was that because he'd been a PGA coach, OK, he didn't go down a mainstream route uh, with sports psychology, he did NLP and and and, and stuff, but um, he still talked about mainstream sports psychology uh, theories and concepts. Um, he made it accessible accessible by talking yeah. your language, by putting it in the, the context specific language and talking about the context specific challenges that golfers face. And I realised from that that I needed to get a to have an appreciation of sports psychology theory terminologies concepts but i needed to shape those theories concepts and language into uh, uh into golf or into football or whoever my audience was and is uh, and it still applies today and um that year i spent with official athletic uh, we got into the playoffs. I was very fortunate to work with a coach called Wayne Burnett, who's now got one of the best coaching jobs in England. He's actually the under-21s coach at Spurs, which is a wonderful coaching job. They're producing a lot of a lot of very good players, as you may know. And um, he, want, he wanted to play football what could be construed in the right way, uh, playing out from the back, good passing, skill. Um, and we had a lot of young players in a in a league that has an average age of 28. I think we had an average age of 21. So we had a lot of young players who came down from academies. And he was very open-minded. And the players were very open-minded to working in their mindset. And it was a wonderful season. And it, it allowed me to do two things. It allowed me to learn the specific challenges that players face. And it allowed me to learn the language of football. And and that was really important, I think. And that's incredibly important as a sports psychologist. We can be generic. We can be generic in our interventions. We can be generic in our language. And absolutely, we can. I can stand in front of, say, a bunch of basketball players and say, look, you've got great coaches around you who know loads about basketball. I don't know anything about basketball. So I'm just going to deliver something here that that is not in your language, but you're going to have to translate it. And sometimes yeah. that works. Sometimes that resonates because sometimes these basketball players don't want to hear any more about basketball. They want to hear something yeah. different and that can work. However, what I have found. So again, I'm kind of preempting probably what I'm going to yeah. go, on, go on to. Last year, I spent a year with Eddie Jones uh, at England Rugby. And it was really, really interesting because it was my first to join into rugby. Armchair supporter again, um, uh, first to join into rugby. And the main challenge was actually under, understanding the language and understanding the specific challenges and the way they go about things and trying to um, um, 
um, bring things in line with what I know about psychology theory. So I, I, I think that year in football really helped. And then I got very lucky. I had a, a, an agent who contacted me and introduced me to a guy at that time called Carlton Cole, um, who you may remember, who has allowed me to talk about the work we did together. Um, and uh, 18 months of hard work on his mindset, he went from a sort of a <coughs> languishing in the West Ham reserves to England, England international under Fad- Fabio Capello. And it kind of built from there at West Ham. And then I went on to Fulham and QPR. And uh, I've, I've had contracts at uh, various places, Derby County. And I'm now with Eddie Howe down at AFC Bournemouth. So, and along that journey, I've been, uh, well, worked alongside yourself at yeah. England Golf. I was lead site for England Golf from 13, 2013 to 16. And as I've just mentioned, worked with um, Eddie Jones at England Rugby. So, yeah. It's a, so it's a from the... I mean, that's awesome. So you've gone through the playoffs and that, that side of things. And then I kind of remember you appearing on a TV show. The football, was it the Footballers Footballers show or something? Yeah, the Footballers Footballers show. So how did show, that come right. about? Because that that was quite a while ago now, wasn't it? Yeah. So that was, I've just written my first book, uh, Soccer Tough. And um, I, I wanted to do what Rotella did for golf. I wanted to do that for football, which, uh, you know, I'm never going to get near the status of Rotella. And he's a, I personally don't agree with everything he says, but um, I, I think he's an absolute legend because he really made sports psychology, you know, like Carl has done to a, to a perhaps a slightly lesser degree in, in, in England. Um, you know, Dr. Bob Rotella really made um, psychology accessible by, you know, writing a book or a few books that, didn't mention theory um, um, and and just brought it to life through stories. And I wanted to do that uh, for for football. So I wrote Soccer Tough and I got permission from a few of my clients like Carlton Cole and Anthony Stokes and Richard Keogh, who aren't necessarily household names, but were were good players at the time. And and just to try to bring, bring sports psychology within football alive. So I'd written that book and had a few good case studies. And um, I just wrote to Dave Jones, who was the presenter uh, on LinkedIn, actually. And I just said, hey, Dave, um, just want to send you my book. And I sent him my book and he read it and he said, look, come on, come on the show. And he, he managed to get Bill Beswick uh, on the show and another guy, Lee Johnson, who had been a footballer and turned, turned sports psych. And um, yeah, it was it was good fun being on the show. Um, felt it was a touch bit low energy. I don't know how well it worked with three psychologists. I think people really on those shows prefer Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher <laughs> and bigger names, but uh, haven't been invited back. But I, I, I thought um, that you know we tried to put across an account for the importance of sports psychology quite quite well. And you know it's been good fun. Dunks. I've I've, I've done various media stuff over the years and do slightly less now because I think it's. You know, I'm not too sure that's always the best way to to, to get your point across because you have such limited time when you do these media <laughs> interviews. Um, but uh, yeah, that was good. So that was sort of upon release of my first book, and I've I've written three others. Others. So you had soccer um, tough. Yeah. And that did that go into golf tough or not? Yeah, it did. So I did soccer tough uh, for players to try to bring to life uh, football psychology, soccer psychology. You can see where I was going with the marketing there, not calling it football psychology, <laughs> football tough, but soccer tough, mercilessly going after the, the <laughs> dollar there. Um, and um, then that moved on to soccer brain, which was for football coaches. Uh, and then I sat down and I wrote um, soccer, uh, golf tough. Uh, and then Soccer Tough 2 after. And Golf Tough was the hardest one I've written because 
Um, there's so many golf books out there, and I really wanted it to to just try to put things across slightly differently. Um, so um, I found that uh, enormously challenging, um, and actually got a not very nice email from Carl, who who said that he enjoyed the book, and, and various others did as well. So uh, I just again just through 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 the the, the uh, power of the pen just try to continue to bring to life. Uh, golf psychology. And then how golf, different then from soccer tough was golf tough with regards to the under the underpinning or the underlying generic psychology as you you touched Yeah. Yeah, look I think it's you, you know there there were some similarities um in as much as um I talked about game face. So I'll still use a game face with both golfers and footballers. I talked about controllers which are your self-regulation techniques. I mean, I having worked with footballers for many years now, um, they they all love to play Xboxes and Playstations, and I wanted to help them understand the idea of self-regulation techniques. So I actually used the metaphor of using a controller, like you use a controller to control a character on the screen, whether that's FIFA or Call of Duty or a game like that. You'll use a controller. Uh, I said, look, you, you've got two controllers, your self-talk and your body or body language um, to help you regulate yourself on the on the football pitch and on the golf course. And I think that rings true for both. So um, at, so I, for both books, I, t- I talk about controllers and game face and um, um, uh, I talk about a soccer image and a golf image, although less so about golf image because I think Bob Rotella talks a lot about that. And I felt it was, you know, you, you don't want to mirror what somebody else talks about. So, uh, but there were differences, uh, Dunks. I mean, I... I um, God, you're testing me now. I'm trying to. You're testing me on, on the contents of my own books. Um, I, I think there was a lot more on practice with the golf one. Naturally, you know, things like games testing and skills testing and utilizing statistics. And you know, I talked about the one thing I talked about in statistics was uh, I talked about the work of Chris Sells and um, I talked about um, the recency effect and how you know if you if you have a, a string of digits. Um, and you're asked to memorize, we're much better at memorizing the latter few digits, obviously, um, and because of short-term memory. And I talked about that in terms of playing around a golf. We, we tend to remember the, the last bits and also, obviously, the bad bits as well, which attach themselves to quite a bit of emotion. So I, I framed the, the importance of keeping statistics with regard emotion and the recency effect. Um and obviously things like core strategy and routine routine within golf is very different to routine within football because it's a self-paced sport. You're going to have a routine on every shot. You'll have a routine before you go and play football, but obviously you're not going to have a routine before a corner, for instance, you know, so it's, uh, there, there are similarities, which is interesting, but there are also, you know, a lot of differences, obviously the pace, but one thing that's also interesting, Duncan, you know, I get a lot of golfers say to me, well, how can you work in football? It's such a quick sport. You know, it's not like golf where there's lots of time to think, you know, how can footballers, you know, and it's really a misunderstanding of the way the brain and the nervous system is structured and how it functions. So I always say whenever I'm delivering a football presentation, I get the audience to clap and um, I'll have one half of the room clap 
five times over five seconds and I'll have the other half of the room clap 25 times over five seconds and I'll say to group A the five claps um, you're my you're my football group because you work in seconds football works quickly it works in seconds it takes a second to score a goal it takes a second to give the ball away or complete a pass but the 25 clap group group B you're my brain group my brain and nervous system group because you work in milliseconds you trump football for speed every single time you know and that's the way the brain and the nervous system works so when you watch next time you watch football you know just saying to your audience here the next time you watch football remember that the brain and nervous system is working in milliseconds and the way the brain works is it's constantly scanning for problems and bookmarking failure and 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 constantly throwing out thoughts and feelings related to 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 what's going on uh, around the player so um you know players will have this instantaneous judgment in the shape of thoughts and i call those automatic negative thoughts ants ants automatic negative thoughts you know and in football what what happens and it's almost impossible for the naked eye to see is that those ants the automatic negative thoughts um create tunnel vision in a player so they can't see the 360 degree view around around the pitch uh, the runs of the opposition, the movement of teammates. Uh, it tightens muscles, so it slows down anticipation. It wrecks decision-making and physical functioning. You know, your body is tight, physical functioning, that first touch becomes heavy. You become heavy-footed, uh, uh, heavy-laden. So um, that that's kind of the way on the pitch a lot of the psychology plays out. And would that then, if I was going to translate that a little bit to golf... In the, uh, would mm. you would you notice then a footballer's performance within a match deteriorate quicker than what a golfer's performance would deteriorate on a golf course? So we hit one bad shot and we can still be thinking about it yep. on the next one and maybe the next one unless we have that intervention. Uh, whereas a footballer can play, I'm going to guess one or two minutes where things are going wrong and their performance, but they. They have an easier opportunity, an easier in through the coaches and their fellow players to bring them back out of that, uh, bring them away from the answers, as it were. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I, I think, God, there's so many yeah. answers to give you there. I, I, I think that how well a player, let's just separate golf yeah. and football for a second and let's just stick with the football thing for a second here. So how well a player in, in the world of football can deal with those ants, if you like, um, will depend on several variables. What is his or her mental skill like? How how good is her mental skill? Okay, to be able to squash the ant or turn down the volume of the ant or just ignore the ant, accept it and kind of ignore it, and then shift back onto appropriate uh-huh. tasks. Now, somebody who is mentally skillful can do that in a few seconds, absolutely. But the vast majority of players aren't that mentally skillful and can get quite engulfed in emotion. So, and that can cause big problems, you know, so they can get lost in the game and that can lead to that downward spiral that finds them out of position and, and technically deficient and things like that. Now, you've hit upon a good point when it comes to coaches and players, but, but, that where we're socialized in football is to berate rather than support. So if you've got your teammate mate, mate there and they've made a couple of mistakes, you know, in polite terms, it's kind of come on, yeah. liven up, 
and that has been being very polite there it's kind of not usually expressed that way rather than and this is where i work quite heavily with coaches and players to this is where leadership is important leadership skills this is where team uh, work and teamwork skills is important to be able to help a player squash their ants and in my colloquialism get back to their game face or get back to their match script so you do have people around you who can support you the challenge we've got in football is the way we've been socialized for so many years is to berate rather than uh-huh. support um i don't mind stretch stretch come on yeah i mean it could be come on liven up you know get back to your game face there get alert get like come on good body language now come on next play yeah. mate uh, that would be that would be support and it would uh, and it would be stretch next play come on liven up or just support you know come on you know, you can do this, get back, you know, get back in the game here, get your head up, come on, mate, I'm with you. Um, but it's too much of berating, you know, berating. Now in golf, really, outside of being on the tour where you've got your caddy, which I think is a really important relationship because the caddy can help here. But when, when you're on your own, wow, you've got to do yeah. it yourself. Now you have, whether it's the luxury or the, the privilege or the burden of time, because more time can be more bad thinking. If you're not mentally skillful, you can be engulfed in the ants and, you know, you can you can really go downhill quite quickly. Next tee, you start to only be able to see or feel a bad shot. You suddenly have a maladaptive relationship with your swing. Um, a lot of ants... You know, it becomes a bit guidey, a bit steery. It's tight, intense. You're not going to square that face through impact. Um, so that that can be a problem. If you've got mental skill and you can get on that next tee and you can still go through a great routine, into the ball, over the ball, through the ball, you can release that club head freely. You can execute a committed swing. You know, you can still focus on the same swing thought or feeling if that's how you like to do it. Um, then fantastic. But so many golfers fall foul of that, don't they, mate? So it, it, it's, and it is up to you often. It is, well, more often than not, it's up to you. And, and that's where the challenge is. That, so I suppose you're, if you're working with a, a, an elite player, then I suppose mm. the, the role of the, the caddy would be extremely important to you with regards to the relationship between the caddy and the player. Uh, I think it's huge, and I and I think that you know a player needs to be mentally skillful. For me, they need a structure or a framework to the mental side of their game. I'm passionate about that, and when you've mentioned earlier my tweets, I'm quite uh, vociferous on Twitter to talk about you know players need a, a mental framework to their game. For me, I want them to know exactly what they're going to do mentally. That's not for everybody. That's not for everybody. Some coaches won't feel the same way as me about that. Um, but I believe that players do need solutions to the specific mental challenges they're going to face on the course. I want them to have a game face. I want them to have a, a, a specific mental routine. Um, it doesn't have to be the same physical routine all the time, but it, I think it, they do need steps with a mental routine. They need tasks there. Uh, I think they need those controllers, those self-regulation techniques. Um, and I think that a, 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 a caddy can be really supportive in that domain. And actually, I think that the 
you know, I always talk about coaches have two dials, a stretch and a support dial. I think caddies can have that as well. Yeah. I think caddies can bring out that stretch dial, uh, you know, when players are practicing. You know, come on, I want to see effective practice here. You know, let's hit these next five shots. Let's set ourselves an objective. Let's have variable shots. Let's have a, a consequence on these. So we've got representative, representative learning design. So we're practicing effectively. I think that needs to be the role of the coach to stretch players in that way. And then I think the role of the, sorry, I, I said the coach, the caddy. And I think the role of the caddy as well is to support. I want to see this routine. I think that's supportive. Come on, go through your steps in the routine. Let's get that right. And then on the course, there's got to be agreed upon. It's teamwork, Dunks. It really is teamwork. It's so important. It's it's no different with uh, being in a team. It, that, that caddy and player have to work cohesively. And when they do, wow, that can be really, really powerful. Clearly, 99.999% of golfers don't have a caddy, so it's not the same. Yeah. So what... Uh... For the listeners, what kind of tools could you give someone to say, next time you go out on the golf course, I want you to either mm. write this down on your scorecard or on your glove or you stick it in your bag on a laminated piece of paper. Is there anything, when someone comes to see you for the first time or after a couple of sessions, do you kind of what happens within that framework? I know I've kind of asked two questions there. So I've, yeah. I've, I've asked... What can you give the listeners something that they can try out next time they go to the golf course or something they, they can use next time they go to the golf course? And then the second question is, if someone is coming to see you, well, how does how does a session look? Do they come to you? Do they come to the house? Do you meet in a coffee shop? Do you meet on the golf course? What kind of happens? Wow. Look, let me ask. Let me answer the second question first. Yeah. You know, if somebody contact and said, Dan, I want to see you, you know, clearly um, I'm, I'm uh, in a fortunate position now where um, I, I do have global clients and uh, it's not always possible to, to, to get to the golf course to see somebody, which is the ideal scenario, which more often than not I'll do. So meeting at the golf club, I think, is, is the most useful and very important. But, you know, uh, actually yesterday I did a Skype session with uh, a young player who's on a scholarship out in the States. So um, that's still very, very possible. It's, you're not there in the environment so it, it one could argue that it's not as effective um but i'd like to think that what we can still work to make it you've already got the relationship so, with that player from previous meetings that you've already had in person yeah yeah although yesterday was actually a first it was a first session so so that was slightly different but you're quite right usually we would have met we would have met first of all and actually with i've got half a dozen tour players at the moment um actually um most of whom are out in Oman uh, right now at the time we're speaking. So they'll be performing from tomorrow. And um, a lot of my work with them is by phone and text. You know, I'm not out on tour. Um, I'm not one of the ones who does the, the 15, 20 weeks out on tour. It's just I, I have too much work in other areas, especially the football. So that's not possible for me. Um, so I, uh, I'll do a lot by phone and text, but ordinarily meet on at the golf club first, because I think in the environment <laughs> is really important. And in terms of what it looks like, clearly I, I, I'm I'm very sensitive to the fact that players will come to me usually with a challenge to overcome. It's great when players say, you know what, I haven't got a specific challenge. I just want to get better in this uh -huh. area. And then we can dive right into the, the, the framework or structure that I, uh, I want to strive to co-create with them. Um, but I will obviously address specific challenges that a player, uh, so this 
person yesterday wanted to address Putin. So we addressed Putin. So we'll first and foremost address the specific challenges that they'll face. But with that, I am very passionate about co-creating the specific framework or structure that I'm passionate about. And 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 so that's that brings us neatly onto the the first question is you know what's a taster of the kind of things that you can experience with me well you know if i was to start with i mean this is across the board but it's particularly pertinent for for better players is this idea and you would have experienced this uh, hearing this from me at england golf is this idea of having an a b c d game dunks and and um i'm very passionate again talking about this socialization piece we're very socialized into outcome and performance um i want to get you know i i, I want to get a top 10 i want to win i want to make the cut so that's the outcome piece and then the performance piece i want to play my a game you know and i define performance as ball control swing strike distance i'm hitting it and um and i'm particularly talking there about you know from long game through to about 30 yards and in 50 yards and in and i've got an a game where i'm i'm Absolutely, you know, I'm basically firing it in at the flag. If I'm a good player, I'm absolutely on it. It feels good. Um, my ball control is there. But the strike is a a plus. Um, feel, swing feels good. I'm hitting it. You know, I'm hitting it a long way uh, relative to my game. Uh, then I've got a B game, and then I've got a C game where I'm slightly off, and then I've got a D. And you know what, mate? Whenever I've given this. Uh, presentation or I've sat down with players, um, tour players especially, and talked about this, each of them will say, you know, if we took 80 tournament rounds of golf per year, the vast majority of people say roughly 10 on A, roughly 10 on D, and then basically the rest being filled 30-30 or 20-40 being filled by B and C. I mean, I'm passionate about this idea of your tour players roughly function on B minus over the course of the year on average of B minus. And when you break it down like that for players, they start to realize, you know, how important it is to put mindset first when they go out on the golf course, because I want players to be really passionate. And maybe we're talking about tour players, good amateurs, category one, category two, but this can still count for category three and four players. I want players to be passionate about getting the most from their C game. And I think when you look at the tour players, if they're passionate about getting the most from their C game, rather than being angry at their C game or despondent at their C game, when they're ready to play their C game and get the most from their C game, when they create that kind of narrative, wow. And when they start to feel, you know what? I can I can go under par on my uh-huh. C game. Or if I'm a five handicap, I can shoot three, four over on my C game. Or if I'm a category two player, I can shoot 10 over or 11 over on my C game. You know, that's a really powerful place to be. And, and, and because it's such a more adaptive rather than maladaptive narrative around C. So I think that, that that's the first little tip I'd, I'd give there is become more passionate about when you're not quite timing it, when you're not quite hitting the middle of the bat, when the sweet spot isn't quite there and we're not quite finding the sweet spot. And when it's slightly off, you know, for me, again, I, that those C shots are kind of just missing the fairway, just missing the greens. Obviously, the D shots are the, the destructive ones, you know, but I'm often saying to my clients, still make a birdie on these C shots. Yeah. 
still make a birdie on the series show. Can you make par? Can you make par on your D shots? Can you make? Can you challenge yourself to make par? Whether it's a chip out sideways or a, a bumping up the fairway, can I make par here? If I'm bumping up to 50 yards, can I hold it? You know, and obviously that's a conversation. <laughs> that's the kind of conversation with a tour player, but. You know, it's the same. It's the same with those category players. Is is what can I, can I challenge myself to 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 make birdie or par on my my C shots and make 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 par on my D shots, which I think is such a more adaptive um, narrative. And then I, I think maybe something more specific would be um, around a game face, which is something that I wrote about in all of my books and something that perhaps I've I've. If, if if anybody knows any of my work at all, they, they've, they've sort of referred to this. Um, and that's really to have a, a uh, consistent personality around the course. And that personality is built from your memory banks and your imagination, your memory and imagination. Um, uh, by that, I mean, think about a time when you've played really well and how you hold yourself, how you go about your business and think about a dream game how you want to be on the golf course, how you want to display yourself. And from that, elicit some keywords um, and maybe even a, a player who you'd want to replicate. And from there, you can get a game face. And I'll give you some examples of game faces. So there was one player who I worked with who played in the Open a few years ago. He was an England player at the time. And from a few questions, we elicited a game face from him, which was Macabounce. Macabounce. Macabounce being a fun little game face. They're essentially pictorial metaphors. And Maca being McElroy. Yeah. And this player loved the way that McElroy bounces around the course because he does, yeah. doesn't he? And um, the idea behind that dunks is it's not be Macabounce and you're going to go and shoot 65. That's ridiculous yeah. to say that, mate. I mean, it, it's about turning, it's about managing yourself. And underpinning that is kind of releasing the kind of hormones that are, we believe in science, are your high performance hormones like endorphins and testosterone and adrenaline. The opposite of that, those are cortisol, which is your stress hormone. So if I get very despondent or I get overly angry and I appreciate some players can play effectively when they get a little bit angry, but. Um, when I get overly despondent or overly angry, I release cortisol and that suppresses my decision making. It suppresses my motion. Um, I get in, uh, engulfed in, in, in negative maladaptive emotions. So what this is about is having that consistent personality and this creating a narrative around when I go and play the open with this with this player, I'm going to be Macabounce. I'm going to be Macabounce no matter whether I'm playing A, B, C, or D. I'm going to be Macabounce no matter A shots, B shots, C shots, D shots. Now, clearly, everybody's different, and there will be players who say, I want some space to have an emotional response after a C shot or a D shot. And that's fine yeah. with me. We have to allow for individual differences. Okay, we can't all walk around. Not so much like robots, but we can't all walk around in the same way. But the point of the game phase is it's very individual-specific. You know, this player wanted to be Macabounce. That suited his eye. It suited his nervous system. It suited his brain. It suited his temperament. It suited his personality. And um, and it just enabled him to say, you know what? Um, if, I, if, if I do find myself two, three over after four, okay, and I'm having a few ants, I can get back to Macabounce. So, so that's an example. So, so just build that from memory, action-based words, have a 
often players pick a Rose or a Woods or, you know, a Dustin Johnson. Uh, uh, one of my players at the moment has DJ Stride. Uh-huh. DJ Stride, yeah. Dustin Johnson Stride. So you are looking for uh, quite emotive words. At, at the other end, I've got a player at the moment who is Cool Calm Federer. Cool Calm Federer. Borrowing from another sport, another sports person, Federer. And this player just loves that idea of being Cool Calm Federer because he tends to get a bit niggly on the course. He tends to get a bit wound up and, and just envisioning cool, calm Federer in the moments he needs to is important for him. So it's kind of just, and, and when we come back to the controller's idea of use your self-talk and your body to say it and be it and do it and enact it. That's really important. That's awesome. I mean, I could probably talk around this for hours as well. You could talk about it for weeks, but um I'm going to leave that that bit there. It leads into a little segue because I want to go almost back to the start when you said that, you know, you're a good player, you became a coach, you're a good coach, but then you found yourself interested in the psychology aspect of it. For the coaches out there listening, uh, Dan, what, uh, what kind of, where can you signpost the coaches to go and look at stuff that they might be, if they're interested in the psychology side, where they should be, signpost too. Where should they go and look for more information on the psychology side of golf? What what can they do? Well, you know what I think I think golf coaches are really good at this because we're so I mean, boy, football it's being it's really, really in its infancy and, and, and rugby it's still in its embryo stage. So that was a really interesting sojourn into England rugby, which was brilliant and great people and, and but interestingly, a sport that uh, sorry, no, I'm going off no, no. here, Dunks. But it's a sport that but that uses physicality to improve what they would define as mental toughness. Uh-huh. Which which, but they go through the physical route to get there. Whereas I think there's a lot of space in that sport and probably sports that are similarly physical to to to, to have some more mental skills and, and utilize more mental constructs. Um, but I think golf, uh, it, it, you know, you guys and. And I was doing CPDs at the turn of the century, you know, 20 years yeah. ago on this stuff with, 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 as I say, as I've said a lot all along, and I've used this link because I know you're friendly with him, Carl and, and, and Jamie and, and, and others and with Bob Rotella and stuff. So it's been around for years in golf. I, I just think I, I, I do, I, I would say two things. I think first thing I'd say to coaches is be adaptive. Don't, read something and start to think this is the way it is uh, and i and i do think we see that uh, there's always big debates around the focus on the target um it's the gabrielle wolf stuff um obviously popularized by rotella uh, back in the mid 90s you know chapter what the, what the third i sees and focus on a small target and and rifle it to the target or whatever and and Gabby Wolf maybe talked about an external uh, focus of attention. It, uh, it might be more a, a proximal focus of attention rather than the distal focus of attention that Rotella talks about. Proximal being the club head or having something around the player um, that, that you know focus on the weight in your shoes rather than shifting your weight. If that makes sense, and 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 so using a, a proximal focus of attention, um, whereas 
the reality is, and I don't know if you agree or disagree here, Dunks, if you walked up along the, the line on the t- at a tour event, most of them would have an internal focus yeah. of attention. If I, I do, then the so, shot takes care of itself. That's yes, the feedback precisely. I get a lot. Yeah, yeah and, and, and for me, Duncan, if anything, I would prefer that. You know, uh, as I alluded to, the, the, the half a dozen or so tour players I'm working with at any given time, and that's the number I've got at the moment. And I can't think of one at the moment who, other than some stuff on the short game, would actually, in their full swing, would have a, a distal focus of attention. Oh. And intellectually, that doesn't make so much sense to me because if your ball is sitting down, <laughs> and, and and you've got to hit a little bit of a draw and you're brave enough to do that with the ball sitting down and you've got to actually get it over a tree as well. You know, the, 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 and I'm talking about in a real extreme example there, but, the, you know, you're not going to have a distal focus of attention and pull off a great shot. So um, I, I'm big on actually ex- examining what either an internal, fo- internal focus of attention and uh, or... Uh, uh, an external proximal focus of attention can do uh, and then that is you quite rightly said mate the shot takes care of itself so my focus of attention is more gained in and around me or inside of me and everything up by the target will take care of itself um and i've got an interesting well i like to think it's an interesting theory that um the when we've got that distal focus of attention what what else is up there the hazards are up there and i don't think that the distal focus of attention so the flag stick the the branch or whatever in the distance or the edge of the bunker is interesting enough to engage our our focus of attention it's not enough of what we would call a cognitive load so i think actually and this isn't for everybody some people might say dan that's just the way it is and that's what i like and it works for me and that's absolutely fine everybody's different but I am dubious about the efficacy, the effectiveness of that. So again, I've gone off on one, but the point being, the point being, I would say to coaches, there is always a very, very efficacious counter argument to what you're reading. So be very careful with your reading. Avoid being, avoid saying this is the way it is. Now, Alongside that, I'm going to fractionally contradict what I've just said, which is strive to build your own framework around the mental side of the game, uh, which suggests actually doing the opposite of what I've said, which is making a decision about how you want to go about it with players. But, But what I would say is make that framework adaptable, adaptable. So, for instance, I've got a game face. I want all my players. I'm quite non-negotiable about a player should have a game face. But that game face is adaptable. That's not a, you must have this game face. It's, it's, it's kind of offering a structure to a player. But, but, a, but a player can be adaptable with that game face. They can have whatever game face they want. Um, routine. I'm, I'm quite insistent on a player having a routine. But that routine is very adaptable. They can do what they want in the routine but they've got to have little tasks in that routine. So I suppose maybe haphazardly what I'm trying to say here is um, I think golf coaches, they've got so much information now, maybe even too much information. And I think they're to answer your question. I think they've got really good resources around that, you know, whether it's going old school with Galway, whether it's with Teller, whether it's, you know, there's some great stuff out there now and there's some great stuff that the PGAs are doing and, and, and you would be involved with yourself. So there's so much stuff out there. I think it's two things. It's number one, be adaptable. Don't be 
So Eddie Jones, the England rugby coach, you know, said to his coaches, don't be a pincushion. Don't just take on, just don't take at face value everything everybody says or somebody says and make that your, your system. Uh, understand there's always a counter argument. There's always research out there that suggests the opposite. But as well, do create your own system. Sit down, read widely, Rotella. Uh, whoever, Hebron, whoever out there, um, my book, dare I say it, and, and then but sit down with notes, at, create notes and say, this is the way I want to go about it. But make sure that framework is a framework. It's not the, the my way or the highway. It's an adaptable framework or an adaptable structure that you can help each player adapt to. Uh, I think that's really useful for to help a player on that. Does that make sense? 100%. I thought, I thought that was I thought that was spot on with regards to, you know, look broadly at the start and then narrow your focus and individualize it for that person that you've got in front of you or for yourself. But don't be scared to look look far and wide. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So after the coaches have now, they've kind of, broadly gone around where they want to go and they're narrowing their focus on on either themselves or the players they have on them on them what um how can how can they get hold of you if they've got more questions dan what's the what's the best way to get hold of you is it just through your website or is it through the social media handles what's yeah, there's, there's no thanks, thanks for that, uh, Duncan. I, I'm uh, yeah through my website. There's an inquiry form, or they can just uh, email Dan at danabrahams.com. Nice and simple, Dan at danabrahams.com. Now, my my, I've got about as I always joke about forty five different tweet uh, Twitter handles um, for different sports, yeah. but my my golf one is at Abraham's Golf at Abraham's Golf, and they are all golf tweets. Um, and then I've got at Dan Abraham's 77, at Dan Abraham's 77, giving my age away there. And um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's um, primarily football, but also generic sport as well. And then I do have one for my own podcast, if you don't mind me saying, which is at, uh, uh, at at Sports Psych Show, at yeah. Sports Psych Show, uh, which is my podcast, uh, The Sports Psych Show. Why did you get into podcasting? Well, mate, uh, I'm so pleased I did. I, uh, I I finished my contract with England Rugby uh, after having worked with them uh, on mental skills for a year back in August and it opened up a bit of time um, sort of in between doing uh, work at AFC Bournemouth and um, various individual projects and various bits and pieces. And um, I just had some time and I thought, um, look, why not? And again, it's, it's I think it like everything, it's a combination of, uh, a, a little bit of marketing, uh, but more, most importantly, CPD. I mean, it's just been fantastic. Uh, like you've been, uh, you said to me, I think off air, uh, you know, it's just, you just get something from every episode, don't you, mate? And um, I've interviewed some brilliant people. Um, I'm probably like yourself. One tries to channel their inner Michael Parkinson and uh, <laughs> try to be as good a host as possible. But um, I, I think my, my, my interviewing style is improving, I'd like to think. But I would hope mine having... is well done. <laughs> no, no, yours is, yours is great. Yours is great. And, and, and the, um, 
and um, I, I just think it's it, it's just great to have a conversation. And I, I've had um, so many good guests on for the world of sports science and sports psychology and coaching, and um, just talking uh, about this area. And I've learned so much. And you know, e- even from you know sports psychologists they'll be into something specific and you're like oh wow i hadn't heard of that before and suddenly that's my own cpd so it's it's awesome i love it i love it sports psych show you go across a lot of sports um just name a few that you've covered just for people who are interested in lots of different sports and the psychology aspects maybe of those well look i mean we've covered oh wow we've covered um (laughs) everything really i mean funnily enough i've got a bar Sorry. You've done some MMA on there? Had some MMA. So we had Frank Shambrook uh, last week, who was arguably the greatest UFC fighter of the 90s before the sport actually became very popular. And next, uh, I think in the next few weeks, I've got a basketball coach and a baseball coach coming on. Um, but uh, we've, you know, we've, we've gone across sports. I mean, I had the, I've had the lead psychologist for British rowing on. Um, I, in the future, I've got lead psychologist for British canoeing. Um, I've, we've talked um, uh, Aussie rules, uh, football, rugby, um, just across, you know, and that, that, that's the thing about, you know, obviously the sports psych show, it, it is obviously we talk about football and golf and, but um, it's great to go across um, sports. And um, uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something for everybody. And, and, and I think what I love about this conversation today, mate, if I may say is, is that, you know, obviously this is your, you function in the world of golf, but I, I think that it's great to have a conversation with a golf coach and talk about other sports as well, because I think that that can, that's where um, podcasts uh, that are, have a specific sport can get be a bit guilty of is if it's a basketball podcast, they just tend to talk about basketball or if yeah. it's a golf podcast and don't get me wrong, there's some really good podcasts within, I hate to say golf yeah. where uh, you just talk about golf and that's great and that's fantastic but I love the fact that you've sort of got me to speak a bit about football because I think I I've been I've improved as a, a golf psychologist if you like uh, by working football I think there's lots of things they do in football that golf could introduce I think there's lots of things in uh, the other way around you know you're doing golf that football can introduce and and across sports as well so I think that that's a that's a good great thing that you've done uh, today, yeah. mate. Is, is get me to talk a little bit about my experience in other sports. I think that's that's great for golf coaches to hear. That's right. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to almost what you said. What what advice could you give to uh, younger golf coaches or golf coaches that want to get more into the psychological side of things? Is look across all the sports. Uh, I was I was fascinated to hear that you felt as though the rugby world was their sports psychology is quite embryonic, um, which that that's really, really surprised me. So, you know, that's something I've learned today, which, again, is always which is always what I want out of these podcasts. The other podcasts that you listen to yourself, Dan, what else do you listen tend to listen to? When you have Look, time, I, if you have yeah, time. I listen across the board and uh, I also try to listen to ones that I don't, you know, don't always naturally come easy to uh, for me to agree with some of the things they say. So uh, I listened to Stuart Armstrong's one, the, the talent equation that yeah. I've been on myself a couple of times and uh, which I love. And uh, um, I listen to, Oh, hold on. I'm going to, I'll tell you what, as, as we're speaking, I'm going to go in and, and, and have a look. Um, 
what I've what I've got. Um, so I've got John O'Sullivan's one, which I think is really good, which is Way of Champions. Um, a really good one, actually, that your listeners might not know is something called the Science of Success. Okay. Um, where the guy, you know, tries to interview some of the people behind the science of self-help topics yeah so rather than being a bit too self-helpy you know um actually um talks to some of the scientists that 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 research some of the day-to-day practical advice that come out comes out of the labs um um within psychology um, units at universities so the science of success is a good one the psychology podcast um, is a good one with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. Um, and uh, hold on, mate. Uh, uh, Perception Action, the Perception Action podcast uh, is re- very, very, he really goes in depth on that one. Finding Mas- Mastery by Michael Gervais. Uh, anyway, I should stop now because if I keep mentioning that, it's for ours, mate. Yeah. So, yeah. And of course, the sports like show. That's what we want. That's what we want. We want people, you know, broadening their horizons, <laughs> yes. looking out. Yeah. But uh, not too much. Not too much, though. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, if you had one more round of golf that you could play, where mm. would you play and who would you play with? And you can choose every any anyone and everyone, dead or alive. It doesn't matter. Uh, Augusta and uh, Tiger Woods. That's a really obvious answer. Isn't no, it? I do apologise. Would, but... would you have a four ball? Would it just be you and him? Okay. Uh, yes. Um, so even more chance to be, for me to be terrified on the tee and have loads of amps. Um, <laughs> so t- t- Tiger Woods, um, Sir Nick Faldo, um, um, ooh. Too hard, too hard to answer that question after that. Too many people. Let's go with Tiger Woods and Sir Nick at the moment. Oh, Jack Nicholas. Okay. Jack Nicholas. So I'm going very golf centric here, but yep. why not? We're playing golf. So um, if I was to have a kick around in football, it would probably be some footballers, um, which would look disastrous because I'd be terrible. But uh, Tiger Woods, Sir Nick Fado, Jack Nicholas, and myself. Okay. I, and, won't, and I, won't, I won't put you on the spot and ask you to name your uh, first 11. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> nobody in the nineteen, uh, nobody from Spurs in the nineteen nineties. That's for sure. When I was growing <laughs> up, I assume that that would be disastrous. But I'd be, I'd be distinctly, I'd be distinctly lacking confidence about taking the money in that full ball uh, around Augusta. <laughs> I have to say, I think uh, even with my game face and my routine, I, uh, I fancy uh, losing a few quid on that one. Is there a couple of questions you'd like to ask them? Um. There's probably loads. Um, oh, I think I'd, I'd like to I'd like to uh, probe Jack Nicholas about the psychology of the game because I know that it's really interesting because I've heard so many conflicting things. He sort of said, "Well, I, years ago I read something where he said, well, I can see how those you know sports psychologists, those guys can kind of." help with somebody when the pressure you know down that back stretch when the pressure is on but equally i heard a really interesting and this is actually from dr geo valiante if i'm pronouncing that right this is on i think his website so this might be a completely biased or skewed um thing that he said i'm sure um he's uh, an honorable man and hasn't skewed the quote but he sort of 
uh, he interviewed Nicholas and obviously they got into a conversation and Gio uh, probably uh, laid out his ideas on the psychology of the game and Jack Nicholas sort of responded by giving a quote along the lines of a young man came and spoke to me today and and uh, laid out how I used to play myself. Um, wow. So it kind of alluded to the notion that um, you know, he probably had really good psychology, psychological processes, but I just, I'd like to ask him if he felt he could have been even better if there were times when he had those, is it 27 runner up positions in majors and maybe could have crossed the line if he had, if he had thought a bit better. So I think that would be really, really important. Um, I'd like to ask Tiger was if he had, uh, I think I'll get a resounding no, but if he had either stuck with the Harmon swing or the, um, um, uh, oh God. Thank Sorry. Moving on to Haney or. Thank you. Uh, yeah. mine, my, mine went blank there. Haney, Haney swing. If he'd stuck with those, uh, would he have one more majors? Um, did, did he feel that he let ambition to get better, get in the way? Um, and actually paradoxically, if more contentment with his game would have actually got him more majors. Um, and then to Nick Fadow, possibly something similar along the lines of, um, obviously he felt he had to be very authentic yeah. um, with his temperament and how he, and it, have a very authentic game face, you know, um, you know, strong reaction responses to poor golf, to C shots, to D shots, to his C game. Um, if, I think my first question would be, uh, actually, if there was a time where he needed to step out of authenticity and be a bit more of an actor on the course, and if that, again, might have, could that have saved him a shot? And he may have won the US Open uh, when he lost in the playoff to Curtis Strange, so late 80s. And um, I think the other question for Faldo would be all those balls he beat, um, thinking about modern days, modern evidence related to practice. Um, so representational learning design, variability, spacing, what we know about the brain now and learning, nervous system and learning, and what we hypothesize anyway. Actually, if you could go back, if he had done that, could he have just practiced a lot less and more efficiently? And would that have made a difference? So, yeah. Yeah, I think I've got quite a lot to ask. You might even tee off, mate. You've we'll, we'll, we'll suddenly still be got in the, the bad game faces. You've got them thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it would be it would be really interesting. Maybe I'll get the opportunity one day. I hope so. That sounds awesome. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to thank uh, people that have helped you throughout your you know your career. So you can give some shout-outs, some mentors, or, or people that you just want to thank. So it's yours. Oh, wow. Um so, uh, look, I, I think without sounding too cheesy, I think uh, uh, Dr. Bob Rotello and Sir Nick Fado, just because just inspiring. You know, I grew up at a time when um, Nick Fado was ruining the roost and, and he was very much the one and loved that 92 open win at Muirfield and, uh-huh. and 90. And, um, you know, um, I took up the game in 1991 um so sort of around that time so that was great and then i think bob rotella took for and galway to a degree although galway resonated with me less the inner game than rotella so i think that that was really so they wouldn't have a a scooby-doo as we'd say in london they wouldn't have a clue who who i am but um thanks to them 
Uh, well, hopefully they do. Hopefully they've read <laughs> Golf Tough. There you go. But uh, there'll be no super. Obviously, Dave Bailey, who gave me a chance to, to be in the shop, and the members at Dulwich and Sydenham, those were the two people I thanked. Uh, they were the acknowledgements in my, my book. Uh, so that's Dave Bailey, PGA Pro who, of Dulwich and Sydenham Golf Club, and the, um, the members. Uh, lots backed me. Uh, some didn't, and that's yep. fine. That, that, that's, they probably had every reason to, to think I wasn't quite good enough and probably gave me some advice, which may have been uh, they felt was good advice at the time, but I'm very content with the decisions I made, and I'm very, uh, I love every single day uh, that I wake up and I get to work in the profession I do, and I think I'm a stronger sports psychologist for making the decision to be a golfer and then golf coach, so I don't regret doing that after leaving school so but thanks to thanks to them and and then I suppose Surrey County and, and people like Hugh Marr who, who gave me a chance to coach within that and then the guys at England Golf um, I think that's that that's that's great as well and Eddie Jones at England Rugby and well there's there's loads dunks yeah. there's loads and and it, so yeah it's um, and parents and family and wife and all that jazz. so yeah excellent good. Dan thanks ever so much for coming on I've loved this uh, this conversation uh, I'm I'm still a very proud owner of a quite well-used golf tough with that that I got you signed, that I got you to sign. You didn't want to sign it, and I made you sign it. Um, so I'm very proud of that, and uh, I hope we can catch up soon. It's the only signed book in the world that diminishes in value when I sign it. I, <laughs> I don't so, think so. Uh, anyway, anyway, look, mate, thank you so much for inviting me on. It was great fun and for your great questions. And yeah, good Thanks very much, Dan. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Cheers, mate.